Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did it not. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. So good to see so many of you. Thank you for being here to celebrate this day with us. We're excited. And so let me reiterate, please stick around and spend time with us as we gather around the tables and to celebrate God, God's goodness to us as a church over the last six years. It's hard to believe uh, that's been six years, um, but we are grateful for all that God has done. We are in the middle of a series uh, this fall, and man, it feels like fall, doesn't it? Absolutely crazy day in college football yesterday, and it's beautiful weather today, so it is, it is fall, officially. And our concern in this series that we're going to be doing this whole fall on the, on the minor prophets is to produce a theology that is strong enough to carry us through the inevitable hard times of life. That was the purpose of the ministry of these prophets to the nation of Israel around the time of their exile, and this morning we come to this book, Uh, the prophet Jonah. And the prophet Jonah writes all about mission. God is a missionary God. And for us to be his people means that we must be a missionary people. So what a great topic for him to have laid out for us 
and I didn't plan it this way, it just happened on our sixth anniversary, as we consider our mission and what it means for us to continue in what we believe God has us in the city of Winter Haven to do. Now, in order to live a life of mission, you have to view your life through a wide-angle lens. It's just another analogy I would use to help us understand. In order to, to really live a life of mission, one of the things you have to do is begin to think about your life and view all of your life through a wide-angle lens. And by that I mean that there's always more going on than what's right in front of you. God is always doing a thousand things, we've said before, and you may be aware of two or three of them. And the first word in the Hebrew in this book is a conjunction. And the purpose of a conjunction, English teachers tell me, is to connect what this author is about to say with what came just before it. And so the story of Jonah comes to us as a part of a larger story that God's been telling that we've been looking at for many, many months now. And that's the way you have to live, always with the big picture in mind, connecting the details of the circumstances of your life to the larger reality of what God is doing in the world, what he's always been doing from the beginning, and what he will continue to be doing long after you and I are gone. That's the only way to really make sense of your life, even especially in the ups and downs and the valleys and the peaks that inevitably come. And that's what we want to look at this morning is what it, what it means for us to take this text and to bring our lives into it and to really allow it to form and to shape us as a people who have come along long after Jonah, uh, but who God will use for time and then we will go by the way and then others will rise after us to continue this great mission that God has. Uh, and we believe that. So I want you to see four things from this text this morning, from this, this whole book. We're looking at the whole book this morning, okay? These four things, and they all start with the same letter, so hopefully it'll help you. The call... The, correct, the correction, the contrast, and the cure. Four spiritual truths, four spiritual lessons that we have to learn from this story in order to be a people that live on mission with God. We have to see the call, the correction, the contrast, and the cure. Okay, so let's work through this together. Beginning with just this, the call. The book begins with a very familiar refrain. Verse 1, if you look there. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Prophet, by definition, was at God's disposal. He was, he was to go wherever God told him to go. He was to speak the words that God told him to speak. And all of his life was to be lived in response to God's call. So the word of the Lord came, you read this over and over and over again in the prophets, it was God's marching orders. Now, one of the things that I would tell you is, is Jonah's meant here to serve as a representative for the entire nation of Israel. God is writing this book to his people, using the story of this man, Jonah the prophet, to show Israel how he meant for them to serve him, how they had failed to do what he had asked them to do, and how he was coming to judge them uh, in the exile that he was sending them into. And if Jonah's a representative for all of them, and by virtue of that, a representative for each of us, then the teaching is just this, that God's word and God's call should be just as definitive for us in our lives as we expected to be for Jonah. In Genesis 1, at the founding of the world, things leap into existence in response to God's word. God says, light, and there's light. He says, sea, and there was sea, stars, and there were stars. Everything in heaven and on earth was called into existence by a word. And so what we expect to read is something like this. The word of the Lord, verse 1, came to Jonah the prophet, son of Amittai. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. That's what you expect, and we expect it, because that's the way it is with all the prophets. The word of the Lord comes, 
And they immediately moved to do whatever it says, but not Jonah. Look at verses 2 and 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. And then we read, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now this is not a one-off response from Jonah. There's much more going on here. It's a picture of our commitment to govern our own lives and keep our own schedules. Jonah's saying to the Lord what we all would say to him. I'm going to run my life from now on if that's okay with you. That's what Jonah's saying, and, and, and this is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is turning away from God and trying to run your own life without him. Trying to find a happiness outside of him. Sin is running from God. And what does the text say Jonah's running from? You see it there in verse 3, twice. He's running from the presence of the Lord. Jonah wants to live without God. He wants to be on his own. He wants God to leave him alone, and we do too. But we have a big problem. We don't want God, but we need him. I have a teenager now, and I'm learning that's the particular pain of adolescence, isn't it? You don't want your parents, but you need them. And it's true of all of us as well. A word word to non-Christians. Looking for happiness apart from God is foolish because there is no such thing. That's why our world's so sad. We want to be self-defined, but all things come to be through an outside authoritative world. And that's why our world, an authoritative outside word, and that's why our world is so confused. We want him to leave us alone, but without him we wither up and die. We are the flower and he is the rain shower. And that's why our world is so lost. But we keep running. We're all running from God, and our best strategy is the one that Jonah employs here, Like him, we would book a trip to Tarshish. Now, historians all agree that Nineveh is not a desirable ministry post, especially for an Israelite prophet. In the Baptist churches I grew up in, there was always this threat, God's going to send you to Africa, right? Be careful, God's going to come and you're going to be a missionary to to deep, dark Africa. But for Jonah, it wasn't Africa, it was Tarshish. The Assyrians... I mean, excuse me, it was Nineveh, and Nineveh, Nineveh, the capital city. Tarshish was where, you know, you want to go. Uh, the Assyrians, which Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, and the Assyrians and the Israelites were political rivals. Assyria eventually conquers Israel in 722 B.C. The Assyrians were known for their brutality. They adorned the walls of their banquet halls. The kids will like this part, the boys will anyway. They adorned the walls of their banquet halls, not with banners, but with the skins of their conquered enemies. Prophets were usually given an unpopular message to deliver, and so what we have here is a recipe for disaster. The modern equivalent would be an American pastor going to Baghdad in the weeks following 9-11 and preaching the gospel of Jesus and the destruction of Islam in the city square. Not wanting to go to Nineveh, Jonah chooses Tarshish. Now a couple of things about Tarshish. All of the scholars and commentators agree that Tarshish was... On the one hand, it was as far away as possible in the opposite direction of Nineveh. If God said, go to Miami and you book a flight to Seattle, okay, that's basically, that's basically what you have here. Uh, you have to hand it to Jonah. He sins boldly, <laughs> right? I'm going to go as far away from what he said as I possibly can. I mean, I'm not just not down the street. I'm going all the way across the country. But the other thing about Tarshish was that it was, it was a resort destination of this day. So Tarshish, if you want to picture Tarshish, Tarshish is your very own Corona commercial. 
That's what it is. Kicked up on the beach, relaxing with a beer, you know, on ice. That's Tarshish. So, in many ways, I think this exposes the sin of American evangelicalism. We live, we want to live with God on the beaches of the Bahamas and not in the war zones of Baghdad. There seems to be a gravitational pull in American Christianity away from need and towards comfort that is in contrast to gospel gravity, which is always away from comfort towards need for the sake of love, which can only mean that American Christianity has in large part become something other than Christian. But before you accuse me of being too harsh, what do you think Jesus meant when he said, if you would come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it. And Islam remains entrenched in the Middle East and North Africa. We read or hear daily of the forward progress of ISIS in Syria and Iraq, and it will remain so because we are not willing to suffer. And we talked about this around the dinner table at my house recently, and our kids were, we were just puzzled and talking about this, and I said there's only one, the only way that we will triumph over the forces of Islam in the world is if we out-martyr them. It's the way the church has always moved forward. And God's call is always towards cross-bearing, towards Nineveh-like places. But if we settle down instead in Tarshish, our Christianity must take another name. It's no longer Christian. Jonah, Jonah, we're told, goes down to Joppa to catch a ship to Tarshish, verse 2. Once aboard, he goes down into the hole, verse 5. This is the way the author is saying this. He lays down in verse 5 to go to sleep. And so what's happening is he is moving toward Tarshish. Something's happening to him. Farther and farther away from his call, and, and, and he keeps going down and down and down. And this is what the author's trying to convey. He goes down, down, down until in the dank, dark bottom of the boat he finally falls asleep. But it's not a normal sleep that comes over him here. It is the same word used in Genesis 2.21 when the Lord God comes to Adam to take a rib from his body in order to make Eve. God causes a deep sleep, we're told, there to come over Adam, and, and then he, he does the surgery. So it's, it's anesthesia is the idea here. It's more, than, it's more than just sleep. It's anesthesia. And it's, you're completely unaware. You're completely unfeeling. That's what's happening to Jonah. And the warning for us is, choose Tarshish over Nineveh, and it will eventually anesthetize you. You'll become numb. And believe me, I know, okay? I know who I'm talking to. I live in a gated community in a house with a swimming pool. But can I say, this is the reason that the North American church is largely impotent, because like Jonah, we've ignored the call. And that's the first spiritual truth we gain from Jonah to keep us on mission. But secondly, so we ignore the call, and so secondly, God comes and there's a correction. God promised to bless Israel so that they might be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He chose them as an instrument of his mission. That's what Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 are all about, which we just read. But their election led to a privileged mindset instead of mission. They chose Tarshish. Israel chose Tarshish over Nineveh, and that's the reason for their exile. The exile was the correction. God's Pressing the restart button on Israel. And this is hinted at in Jonah's story too. What happens here when Susan read it a minute ago when Jonah abandons the mission? He runs away from the Lord. What does the Lord do? He sends a storm. Now, we might naturally read Jonah's story and connect the storm to God's anger, but that would be wrong. God is coming against Jonah for sure, but the storm isn't his judgment. The sleep is. The storm is mercy. The storm is the wake-up call. It's the correction. And we have to change the way we think about life. See, when storms hit our lives, our first inclination is to think, oh, I've messed up. God's mad at me. He's going to 
rip my life to pieces. But what we never consider is what the storm we're going through is saving us from. I've not been doing this too terribly long, but I've never had somebody come into my office and describe a storm they're going through and say, you know, I wonder what God's saving me from that he had to do this in my life. We fear the storm, but we lack the perspective to understand that what we really should fear is the thing before the storm that we're sleeping through that God has to send the storm to wake us up from. Storms can be scary times. But can I just be honest? They're not nearly as scary as the sleep. I mean, the ultimate judgment is to be sinning and to never feel guilty, to never have your conscience protest. The scariest thing of all is to be living in open rebellion against God, headed towards Tarshish, and to not be bothered, to not be losing sleep about it, to be completely anesthetized to your true condition, like Jonah in the bottom of the boat. The storm isn't the judgment, the sleep is. The storm is mercy. And in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, we often miss it. The young man who went away, you remember the story, he went away to the far country with his father's money and began to blow it on stupid decisions. He went off to Tarshish, to, you know, and things go fairly well for him there. And then we read in the, in, the, in the story, and we miss it sometimes, but we read, and then a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. Now, we wrongly assume that he overspent and got in trouble, but... That wasn't it. It was providence. God sent a storm, and the illusion that his money gave him of being in control was stripped away, and he began to be in need. And then he woke up. We're told, Jesus says, he came to himself. And that's what storms do. That's why God sends them into our lives. Eugene Peterson, in a book he wrote on on Jonah, he had this to say. He said, storms strip us to the essentials, and they reveal the basic realities of of life. He means that when the sea is calm and everything is going okay, it's easy to fall asleep, just to get busy with life and, you know, having fun and to stop asking hard questions and just to be on cruise control. But when the storm hits and all of the non-essentials begin to be taken away from you, you have to dig deep. You have to really go down deep into the core beliefs and the values that drive your decision-making. So the storm forces you to answer really hard questions. And that's really, it's fascinating if you read this book in, in total, There's just question after question that Jonah's bombarded with all of these really deep, you know, existential questions about who he is. Who are you? What is it you've done? Why are you here? And then the Lord comes in in chapter 4 and begins to pile on. These are the kinds of questions. Who are you? Why are you here? What's your mission? What's your life all about? How is it you got to be at this place? These are the questions Jonah's forced to answer as the storm rages. And most of us would rather live our lives without having to answer questions like like those. We're on cruise control. We're asleep behind the wheel with the GPS set for Tarshish. And God sends a storm to wake us up. And it's what happens to Jonah in the story. Who are you? The sailors ask. And he answers, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea. Chapter 1, verse 9. I belong to God, Jonah says. My life is his. And that is true of every single one of us in this room. And if it's true, then it simply does not do for us to not live having answers to the question, why? Because for a Christian, the why, the answer to the why, whatever it might be, why, the answer is never because I want to. The answer to the why about your life is not, well, because it feels good. The answer to the why is always the call. And storms are God's course correction to keep us aimed at the mission. And that's the second spiritual truth we gain from the book of Jonah, meant to keep us on mission. 
So let's keep going. Third, we see the call and we see the correction. And then thirdly, we see the contrast. And what we find is, as the story unfolds, that we, we really begin to discover there's something really wrong in Jonah's heart that explains why he went AWOL. But it doesn't come out to the very last chapter. The storm was the reboot, okay? But after the storm and the fish, verse, verse 1 of chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So he gets a second chance. Arise, go to Nineveh and call out against it. The message I tell you, and this time he went, and the most amazing thing happens. Nineveh repented, turned to God, revival breaks out. This is every preacher's dream. Jonah should be elated. But in chapter 4, the chapter begins with, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And we're left with this perplexing theological question. Huh? What? Why would Jonah be angry? Isn't this the goal? Isn't this what's supposed to happen? What in the world's going on here? And thankfully, chapter 4 offers the answer. So look down in chapter 4 with me at verses 2 and 3. Jonah begins to speak to the Lord. He says, Lord, is is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So he gives us the answer to why he went. And here it is. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it would be better for me to live, excuse me, better for me to die than to live. I mean, this is absolutely startling. It's amazing. God forgave the Ninevites, and Jonah resented it. It made him angry. And not just, I'm a little upset about this God kind of anger, but this was, if this is the way you do things, if this is the way the the world works, I would rather die than to continue to live. I mean, Jonah's life is ripping apart at the seams. He's slipped into depression. And why? What's caused this? And the answer is that Jonah is self-righteous. And the thing about self-righteousness is that self-righteousness is a source of life. You feel better than other people, and it it feels good to feel feel better than other people, doesn't it? Or maybe just for me. It does. It feels good to feel better than other people. You're in control, and that feels good. right? Thinking you're better than other people, it's a source of life. It can give you life, and it was a source of life for Jonah, and it's being taken away from him, and that's why he's so angry. Look, Jonah's self-righteous. He's been secretly... Hoping for Nineveh's destruction, more than hoping, his whole life was built around the idea that the world works in a certain way. Nineveh, those guys are the bad people. Me and the nation of Israel, we're the good guys. And God, it's God's job to treat people as their sins deserve. So God is supposed to love and reward the good guys, and he's supposed to punish and destroy the bad guys. This is the way the world works. And if you're one of the good guys, you're pretty happy about things working this way. It feels good. It's a source of life. But when it doesn't happen, see, that's the point of the story. When it doesn't happen, Jonah starts to pout. He sits down on a hill overlooking Nineveh, chapter 4, with a scowl on his face. And he says, I'm not playing with you anymore, God. Like a child would do in your living room. He throws a pity party. And John Piper, I think, has brilliantly highlighted how self-righteousness and self-pity are both manifestations of the same pride. He says, really what this is is self-pity. And self-righteousness is the response of pride to success, but self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Self-righteousness is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong, but self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. So here are his words. He says, The reason self-pity doesn't look like pride is that it appears to be needy, but the need arises from a wounded ego, and the desire of the self-pitying person is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need self-pity fills does not come from a sense of unworthiness, 
but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is a response to unapplauded pride. Let me explain that. Jonah's anger is self-pity. It's wounded self-righteousness, right? Because we all know this. When somebody else gets, gets punished, feels good because I'm affirmed. When somebody else is applauded, it's hard not to feel slighted. That's the pride of the human heart. And John Piper says that pride leaves us needy. There's an inner emptiness in our lives, a, a, a psychological neediness that's driving us, a deep desire for approval or for applause. And so we do good things so that we can feel good about ourselves or so that others will notice and they'll praise us. We become moral and generous and we make sacrifices and, and all of these things because we want people to see us as heroes and applaud us. And when they don't, right, when I've worked hard, my kids are well-behaved and polite and nobody notices and compliments them like I want them to. And then I'm sitting at the table with somebody and they look over at this other family whose kids are just rude and terrible. And, they, and, and, and you know, they're everything I don't want my kids to be and my kids are not. And they say, oh, I just love that family. They're so sweet. Those kids are so great. I mean, what's that feel like? Right? Or Ashley's out of town for three days for a fun time with friends, and for 70 hours, the kids and I completely let the house go. Underwear on the floor and dirty dishes. But we bear down for the last two hours, and the house is spotless, and she walks in the door, and I'm just waiting for the wow, this place looks great. But then she doesn't notice, and I want to say, but I'm the hero. Right? I'm the hero. We've been gone for three days, and nobody died. I am the hero. Praise me. And it doesn't come. <laughs> because she, you know, she just thinks I've been doing what functioning adults are supposed to do. And <laughs> it's probably true. Which is why dads that are home put it on Facebook. Because they know all the other people were commiserated with them even when their wives won't, right? So, but yeah, I'm the hero. Praise me. And then it doesn't come. See, God's love for Nineveh wounded Jonah's ego. It takes away. It takes away the self-righteousness that's been fueling his life. They deserve to be punished, and yet God forgives them. And he's not sure he wants to live in a world where people aren't given what they deserve. And, and, these people that God forgives are the very ones that are going to go on to destroy Israel. So what God does here sets the stage for the bad guys to gain the upper hand on the good guys, and it's too much for Jonah. His head literally explodes. And the stakes are high. And so what I want you to see is there's a contrast. There's a contrast. And the contrast is just this. The contrast is God wants, excuse me, Jonah wants God to hate sinners and punish them. God wants Jonah to love sinners and have compassion upon them. Jonah wants God to be angry. God wants Jonah to be compassionate. That's the contrast. The contrast is Jonah in chapter 4 is angry. God is compassionate. In reality, Jonah is angry because God's compassionate. He's too self-righteous to share God's compassion. Now, this is going to be hard. Let me warn you. Do you believe that God is angry with ISIS, or do you believe that he's compassionate? Okay, now, be, that's the closest equivalent I can come up with to the moral dilemma facing Jonah. And it's a trick question. At least the answer is very complex. I mean, Psalm 711 says that God is a righteous judge and he's angry with the wicked every day. So, of course, God is angry. 
I mean, that group of people is the epitome of wickedness, and we would rather God wipe them from the face of the earth, and if not God, then President Obama and a few Tomahawk missiles will do. Right? But this story should give us pause. God's compassion towards Nineveh felt to Jonah the same way the idea of compassion towards ISIS feels to us, and God will not have us settled in our anger and hard-heartedness. Do you do well to be angry, he asks. Should I not pity? Is it wrong for God to show mercy? Should we pray for the destruction of ISIS or for the conversion of ISIS? And if there was conversion, can we celebrate it? These are searching moral questions. And if they make you uncomfortable, it's because you have a little bit of Jonah in you, and I know because I do too, but here's the point. Self-righteousness makes you hard-hearted toward the lost world, and that destroys mission. This is Jonah's real problem. He doesn't want God to save Nineveh. He wants justice for Nineveh, not mercy. The way the elder brother in Jesus' parable, if you remember the story of the prodigal son, he wanted justice, not mercy, for his irresponsible, immoral younger brother. The older son secretly relished his father's displeasure of his younger brother because it made him feel affirmed. His father's anger was a source of life for him. His father's anger towards his brother... But instead of being disciplined upon his return, the lost son was celebrated. So instead of the father's anger, which the elder brother was hoping for and expecting, there was a smile and he was greatly offended. The father's joy offended him and he hated it. Why? Because he says, I've been slaving for you all these years and you've never thrown a party for me. It was unrecognized worthiness, right? Unapplauded pride. And Jesus tells us the story to warn us that if we are so self-righteous that we grieve God's mercy to sinners instead of celebrating it, we are closer to hell and further from heaven than we might imagine. And so lastly, the cure. Do you do well to be angry? Should I not pity, the Lord says. We should always celebrate God's grace to sinners. Why? Because we are them. We should celebrate repentance the way the angels in heaven the heavens do. We should, we, if we don't, it's because we're more like the religious crowd that follow Jesus around than we might like to admit. So what's the solution? What's the cure? And it's the spiritual truth Jonah learned and then forgot in the middle of the story during his time in the belly of the fish. And I need to move towards an end here. Pick up with me in chapter 2, verse 7. He says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay for salvation belongs to the Lord. So the lesson Jonah learns and then forgets is that salvation is what God does. Salvation belongs to the Lord, he says. Salvation is what God does. It's a gift. It's grace. We didn't choose him. He chose us. We didn't love him. He loved us first. We didn't go looking for him. He came looking for us from beginning to end. Salvation is God's work. It's God's grace. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, the psalmist says, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And for this one brief moment, Jonah gets it, but for the rest of the story, he believes the opposite. Jonah believes salvation belongs to me. It's what I do. It's what I must do. It's my effort. It's my sacrifice. It's my hard work. It's my moral achievements, and God sees those things, and he's happy with me. That's what gets me his favor. He believes in works righteousness. I mean, Jonah believes you hit the home run and the crowd will cheer for you. You strike out and they'll boo. And in Jonah's mind, he's hit the home run, but nobody's cheering. And that's why his world's falling to pieces. Because God's grace, God's grace deals a death blow to self-righteousness. 
There's no one righteous, no, not one, the scripture says. So either you have to give up your self-righteousness or you have to give up his grace. The two can't coexist. And a Christian is a person who's given up their self-righteousness. They've stopped looking to self-righteousness for life and they've turned instead to God's grace for the life they need. Jonah comes to understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. He also, kind of understand, he also comes to understand how salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is the last thing I want to say. He says in verse 7 of chapter 2, My prayer came to you into your holy temple. And so when Jonah's in the belly of the whale, or the fish, he turns his heart towards God's temple. Why? Because the temple was the place where God dealt with the sins of his people. And the reason God could offer mercy and not justice is because his justice had already been satisfied through a sacrifice. They would bring a sacrifice to the priests, confess their sins over it, and then the sacrifice would be killed in the place of the worshiper. And Jonah knew this is the way that it worked. And that's why he aimed his prayers at the temple. He said, he said, God, I know you can be merciful and forgive me and accept me, even in my rebellion, because of what I learn in the sacrifice of the temple. But here's the thing. We have a greater resource at our disposal than Jonah did. Because when the religious leaders of his day asked Jesus to authenticate his ministry, he told them, he said this, that the only sign that would be given to them was the sign of Jonah. And just as this man, Jonah, was voluntarily thrown into the stormy sea to satisfy God's vengeance and to save the sailors in the boat, so Jesus Christ would be voluntarily thrown into the ocean of God's eternal justice and he sank to the bottom of it to save us from the wrath of God that was due us because of all of our sinning and running. And just as Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish and then was resurrected, so Jesus would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth and on the third day, he would rise again in Jesus, Luke eleven thirty two. the one greater than Jonah has come, and that's our gospel. That salvation is not of me. Salvation belongs to him. And here's the thing. You see, so the gospel is the cure for self-righteousness and self-pity because in Jesus, you have the praise of God. Do you know what that means? It means that God sees you. Others may not, but God does. That he sees you and he's standing in heaven. And if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, here's what the Lord is in heaven doing. There you go. That's what he's doing over your life. And that's the only thing that can fill up your inner emptiness. But you see, the gospel is also the theology we need for surviving the storms in our lives. If my sin has been dealt with, then if God's wrath has been satisfied in my Savior, the Lord Jesus, in my place, then I don't have to be afraid of the storm. I can trace the rainbow through the rain. As the old hymn says, the storm isn't judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The storm isn't judgment, it's mercy. But finally, the gospel is the power to say yes to the call. God's compassion for this city, the great Nineveh, the the great city Nineveh, which means the city great to God. Nineveh was great to God, it was important to God. He loved Nineveh, and our city too is great to God. So just as six years ago, Before our first worship service, we sent out an invitation to all of our friends. And on the invitation, we said, we wrote, our goal is not a great church, it's a great city. Because from the very beginning, we wanted to be a church for the city. Because God is for the city. But you see, it's only when we see his great compassion. That our compassion for the city that he's called us to becomes a faint echo of his compassion and love for our city. We must see the call. We must see the correction. We must see the contrast, and ultimately we must hope in the cure, and then we can live on mission with him. So let's pray as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, 
I do pray that as we continue to worship together and as we gather around your table this morning, that the, that the effect of the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives would be to abolish and to destroy our self-righteousness, that in, in, in considering the great love and the sacrifice that you've made, that we might be reconciled to you, that you would, that you would just smash into a million pieces our hard hearts and replace them with hearts that beat with compassion and love for the, for the lost and the needy in our city. So that we might be a people, even as we celebrate six years today, and the next six years and the, the years after that, that we might be a people that go and tell and share and give and love so that you might be honored and glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, what, a great, what a great passage for us as we contemplate a day where we really can you know, reconsider the mission that God has given us. And places like Nineveh can be scary for if, if God were to send you there. And so this benediction is a great promise to the scary places where the call might cause you to go, that he goes with you, that he'll bless you there. But also, it's a great preventative against our self-righteousness because though I speak over you God's words of blessing, that blessing doesn't come to you because of anything you've done. It's sheerly of his grace. And that should just destroy any sense of self-righteousness and replace it with compassion towards those who are still outside of Christ. And so uh, receive the promise of the benediction as such. And this is really a prayer for blessing, and so it can also serve as our prayer for lunch as well, okay? Uh, so, but, but this really, these are the words that you must hold on to. They will make you fruitful in the mission that God has called us to in this city. So receive them in faith. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.